The Self and Its Sources, Reflections on Virginia Woolf's The Waves, by Gil Bailey, produced by the Cornerstone Forum, Part 8. This is the big drama at the end of this novel, and you ask it on a number of levels. Will Bernard undergo the transformation? Will he discover transcendence? Will he experience a conversion? I'm not speaking in a strictly Christian sense, but it's hap- this novel is, it defines it in Christian terms, so, so there's no reason not to. But we could speak in an anthropological sense. Will he experience a re- renunciation of his, of his life of desire? Asterix, forget Freud. That's not that kind of desire. Will he experience a transcendence? Will he undergo a conversion? Uh, and... The corollary to that is, will the novel end coherently? Bernard says, but it did not last. Why didn't it last? What torments one, he says, is the horrible activity of the mind's eye. How he fell, how he looked, where they carried him, men in loincloths pulling ropes, the bandages and the mud. Percival. He remembers Percival was thrown off his horse in India and died. And it didn't work because he became fascinated by images of Percival's death. And so he became fixated on the event, the historical event of Percival's death. Or the strictly, strictly the historicity, you could say almost. In the same way that I spoke, I guess it was last week, about uh, the interest in the historical Jesus, which is absolutely legitimate at one level, and another level can have the same effect, can become something. If, it's, if we go to it in order to demythologize, amen. If we go to it in, uh, as, a, as, as an interest, a sort of curiosity about biography or about uh, personality, and it eclipses this, the, the, the real event, which is the cross, then it has the same effect it has in this novel. Namely, he began to think about the bandages and uh, the, loin, the men in loincloths and how he looked when he fell and how they carried him away and so on and so forth. And uh, th- this moment of clarity was gone. At the same time, you have another echo of the, uh, of the parallel with the Christian story. He says, then comes the horrible... Excuse me. He then, then he says, then comes the terrible pounce of memory that I did not go with him to Hampton Court. So there was a moment earlier in the novel when Percival said to Bernard, let's go to Hampton Court, and Bernard said, no. And now suddenly that no resonates with enormous significance because Percival has been killed in India. And now he suddenly remembers he didn't go with him to Hampton Court. Why is this in here? Does, does that ring a bell at all? I mean... You see uh, the parallel with the story of Peter, the, de- the denial of Peter, you see, the sudden realization, the cock crows. Oh, now we say, wait a second, the cock crowing is what reminded Peter that he had denied Jesus. And now Percival says, I didn't go with him to Hampton Court. He, he underscores it. He says, that claw scratched, that fang tore. I did not go. And so I went to Jenny because she had a room. There I confessed with tears. I had not gone to Hampton Court. So it's, remember Peter cries when he hears the cock crow? So it's this realization that he let him down. He did not follow him to Hampton Court. I think we're invited by the novel to see that as parallel to to the basic Christian story. Now, he's now at Jenny's confessing and weeping. And we have, where once again, we have the situation where it could be consequential. We say, okay, this is good. He feels contrition. We know this is an important element in this profound turnaround. He's confessing and weeping. So far, so good. This could come to it. We, this, this novel might end after all. Or Gil's commentary on it might end up. Is it going to happen? So he's there in Jenny's 
room and watch what happens. Soon a maid came in with a note and as Jenny turned to answer it, I felt my own curiosity to know what she was writing and to whom. I saw the first leaf fall on his grave. Now we have to understand this. You see, what always tempts Bernard is the sociodrama, is the mimetic intrigue of the sociodrama, the social melodrama going on. You see, that's the alternative. That is, that is what was shattered when he heard of Percival's death. Suddenly that's gone, and he sees with his incredible clarity. And here he is weeping at Jenny's, and the note comes in, and Jenny's writing an answer to the note, and he wants to look over her shoulder because he thinks, hmm, wonder who she's writing to. Wonder what that's all about. And it's finished. He's back in it. He's back in the melodrama. So he says, I felt my own curiosity to know what she was writing and to whom, and I saw the first leaf fall on his grave. I saw us push beyond this moment and leave it behind us forever. Okay, so that didn't work either. So we're still back to the question. Can Bernard experience something, some, a permanent transformation? He may be back in it, but never as fully as he was before. See, this is part of what happens. We get back in it, but we never quite get back in it as we were before this event that knocked us out of it happened. And this is the Hamlet dilemma. You know, Hamlet comes back from the University of Wittenberg and back into Denmark, and he's back in it and back in the old intrigue and back into the place where you avenge your father's death and, and take power and so on and so forth, but he can't quite do it because he's been to the university. <laughs> he's, he's seen something bigger than that. And this is the same thing here. Bernard has had an experience beyond all that that shatters all that, and he can't, even though he's back into the, to the old melodrama, he can't be fully into it. He says, I still observed with disillusioned clarity, which is, I think, a marvelous phrase, disillusioned clarity. That's the only kind we humans are, 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 uh, are granted. It's a, you, if you want clarity, that's the kind we get. But I think that's the best we can hope for, disillusioned clarity. So when the disillusionment sets in, not to despair, that's part of the process. If we live in illusion, there's only one way out of it, and that's disillusionment. So he says he sees with disillusioned clarity. He says, I was like one admitted behind the scenes, like one shown how all the effects are produced. That's Virginia Woolf talking because she's written a novel which is nothing but showing us behind the scenes how all the effects are produced. It's exactly what this novel is. She, be, she saw behind the scenes and she said, I'm going to write a novel from behind the scenes. I'm going to turn this thing inside out. And you want to read a novel? I'm going to show you the novel from the backside. The question is, can the novel end? And if so, how? And I've all along compared this novel to Dostoevsky's Notes from Underground. So if we go back to Notes to Underground, we might get a hint about whether the novel can end. How does that novel end? Dostoevsky's Notes from Underground doesn't come to an end, it just stops. He says, the underground man speaking, he says, leave us alone without books and we will be lost and in a confusion at once. We should read here books he's writing in the middle of the 19th century. We should read, fill in all of the things that now work for us like books used to work. That is to say, radio, television... Leave us alone without books, and we'll be lost and in a confusion at once. We will not know what to join, what to cling to, what to love and what to hate, what to respect and what to despise. The underground man speaking, he says, We are still born, and for many years we have not been begotten by living fathers, and that suits us better and better. This not being begotten by living fathers, you know what that means? That means not learning how to be a human being from our parents in the old-fashioned way of respecting and looking on and learning out of the corner of your eye from one model or, or a few models, you see. That old-fashioned way. But he says, now we're not begotten by living fathers anymore. We are begotten 
by the, by, the, by the figures in these books that we're reading or by these figures that we see on television and on the movie screens and on all the rest of it, you know. We're begotten by the ads on, from Madison Avenue and MTV and, they, and, and primetime television and the 6 o'clock news. That's how we're begotten, not by living fathers. We are developing a taste for it, he says. Soon we shall somehow contrive to be born from an idea. But enough, I don't want to write more from underground. Dot, dot, dot. And then, below that, it says, the notes of this paradoxicalist do not end here, however. He could not resist and continued them. This un- inability to resist. You know, the underground man was just a total... He was, he was a mimetic creature in a way even more profound and perverse than Bernard. And he couldn't resist. He kept writing them. But, the last sentence of the book is, but it also seems to me that we may stop here. The novel has no conclusion. And I think it has no conclusion for an absolutely appropriate reason. The underground man was so far gone that there was no way that Dostoevsky, writing at that time, could have pulled the fat out of the fire in time to end the novel. So he just stopped it. Gerard says, great novels always spring from an obsession that has been transcended. Not speaking here chronologically, or maybe even in a literary way, but speaking in some other way, whatever it is, the notes from underground in the ways represent the last novel, quote-unquote, the last novel. Uh, there may be 500 years more of novel, although I don't think so. But there may be a while. But anyway, they represent the last novel in some way. The first, so let's go to the first novel. The first novel, by, by uh, according to a lot of people's opinion, is the Don Quixote, Cervantes' Don Quixote. How does it end? Don Quixote comes home. He falls sick. He's going to die. And he says... My mind now is clear, unencumbered by those misty shadows of ignorance that were cast over it by my bitter and continual reading of those hateful books of chivalry. That's just the underground man, remember, just a minute ago was saying, without him, we wouldn't know what to do. And here's the first novel talking about the same thing. Isn't that amazing? Is it coincidental? I don't know. If If it isn't coincidental... Hats off to Dostoevsky. If it is coincidental, hats off to the paraclete. And even if it's hats off to Dostoevsky, who's he but an agent of the paraclete? Anyway, the, so I'm getting ahead of myself and carried away. But anyway, back to, so he says, those hateful books of chivalry. Quixote says, I see through all the nonsense and fraud contained in them now, and my only regret is that my disillusionment, there's that word again, has come so late, leaving me no time to make any sort of amends by reading those books that are the light of the soul. He's not saying, oh, we're going to renounce books. This is not some puritanical thing or, or, or some kind of iconoclastic thing, you see. No. The mimetic facts of life don't change. The question is, what are our influences? And then he says... I find myself, he's speaking to his niece, I find myself, niece, at the point of death, and I would die in such a way as not to leave the impression of a life so bad that I shall be remembered as a madman. For even though I have been a madman, I do not wish to confirm it on my deathbed. And so, my dear, call in my good friends, the curate, the bachelor, and the barber, for I want to confess my sins and make my last will and testament. The curate is the priest, the bachelor is the is the educated one, and the barber is like, uh, you see, the barber barber is an interesting character because he's he goes all the way back to the sacrificial priesthood in terms of the anthropology of the barber, but he's also the surgeon, he's the he's what passes for a kind of healer, uh, as well as someone who cuts hair. So bring in the barber, the curate to hear his confession, uh, and the bachelor who's the who's the learned man. And then uh, they came in without her having to go get them. They showed up, and Cervantes says the following. I have good news for you, kind sirs, said Don Quixote the moment he saw them. I am no longer Don Quixote de la Mancha, but Alonso Cuyano, whose mode of life won for him the name of good. 
I am the enemy of Amadis de Gaulle. Remember, Amadis de Gaulle was the knight errant that he spent his whole life trying to, to uh, mimic. I am the enemy of Amadis de Gaulle and of all his innumerable progeny. For those profane stories dealing with knight errantry are odious to me, and I realize how foolish I was and the danger I courted in reading them, and I am in my right senses now, and I abominate them. Well, what's the point of reading that? The point of reading that is to say the first novel ends with conversion, a renunciation of a life of desire and illusion, and then the question is, can this novel do it? Gerard says the conclusion of a novel must be considered as a successful effort to overcome the inability to conclude. There's something inherently difficult about concluding novels. And what's inherently difficult about it, I think, is this, that the whole apparatus that makes the novel interesting has to be exposed as, as ludicrous and perverse in order to bring it to its proper conclusion. What makes us interested in novels is what made Don Quixote interested in Amadis de Gaulle. It's the effects of the mimetic dynamic. But Bernard and Virginia Woolf have seen behind the scenes and seen the effects that, ma that produce all the, the machinations that produce all the effects. And a novel has to end by calling all of that into question. And it's very difficult to have sustained the interest of your readers. You know, Shakespeare had the same problem. Sh Shakespeare, you, you can t Shakespeare has an itch to blow the whistle on his, own, on his own game. But he can't do it because that's how he makes a living. <laughs> that's what he does. And you see it in, in many of his plays. You see Shakespeare exposing the apparatus, the, 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 the contraption that's producing all the effects, Exposing it, but exposing it so that only the people in the in the in the box seats get it. The the, the groundlings don't get it, and so every once in a while he winks at his at his intellectual peers up in the up in the box seats, but he never until he gets to the tempest, and when he gets to the tempest, he blows the whistle, throws the staff away, and walks away from it. But anyway, I'm just saying. Here's a novel that becomes absolutely totally fascinating, and at the end it has to say all this fascination was a, a house of mirrors and a distraction. And that's a very tough thing to do. And by the way, I think our lives are the same way. <laughs> Eckhart says, die before you die. Um, okay, so here's what Gerard says. Novelistic conclusions are bound to be banal since they all quite literally repeat the same thing. And a novelist who's, who's made his or her career on, the, on you know, not being banal doesn't want to suddenly come to the end and write something that's, that is predictable. See, this is it. You don't want it to end predictably. And it won't end otherwise. Now, this is what Gerard... By the way, Gerard said this in the 1960s. One is amazed at the courage it must have taken to say these things... I mean, or to say them today even, but, but to say what he said. For example, the banality of novelistic conclusions is the absolute banality of what is essential in Western civilization, which is this discovery of illusion and the abandoning of it for something more substantial. He says, if only our prejudices pro and con did not erect a watertight barrier between aesthetic experience and religious experience, he means their literary experience and religious experience, we would see the problems of creation in a new light. And we would at last realize that Christian symbolism is universal and that it alone is able to give form to the experience of the novel. Who would... Who would see, to even say that... <coughs> in the academic environment of the last 30 years is unbelievable, really. But where did the novel develop? It's a Western phenomenon. It has a root story. There's a root, there's a meta-narrative underneath all novels. And it's the, it's the meta-narrative of the Western civilization. 
And Gerard has had enough courage to see that and say it out loud to the guffaws of literary critics who were busy, busily proving that no meta-narratives uh, could be sustained or even should be sustained. Okay, while we still have Don Quixote, the conclusion of Don Quixote fresh in our minds, let's come back to Virginia Woolf's story. Bernard now, is he has failed again, you know. He failed to, to experience this, some kind of permanent uh, transformation. And so he walks out onto Fleet Street in the rush hour. And the cars are zipping past. And he says, seizing my chance. And even that, you see, why did she put him in the rush hour? So that he could dash across, across the street and say, I'm seizing my chance. He knew, she needed to have some, some setting in which he could say those words. Seizing my chance, I dived down a dark passage and entered the shop where they cut my hair. I leaned my head back and was swathed in a sheet. Where has he gone? To the barber. Why has he gone to the barber? I don't know. But I think it's pretty interesting. Now, Virginia Woolf couldn't bring the, cur the, the priest into this story. This is Don Quixote. She couldn't bring the priest. The bachelor made no sense. They were all intellectual. What, who's there at this moment when it's shriving time? <laughs> who's there? The barber. I think it's absolutely remarkable. So you have this situation again. Either Virginia Woolf is cagier and more brilliant than we thought. I'm perfectly happy with that conclusion. Or the paraclete is, is, has taken over completely. I think it's amazing. And there he is, and he's, he's covered in a sheet. It's very much like being dead, you see? It's very much like being on your deathbed. And instead of the priest, you know, giving you the last rites, you have the barber over there doing, cutting away. But... You have the constant temptation for Bernard, as for all of us moderns, of the melodrama. And that is, can he renounce it? Can he renounce it? And so he says, I linked my head back and was swathed in a sheet. Looking glasses confronted me in which I could see my pinioned body and people passing, stopping, looking, going on indifferent. So there it is. He's there, but still the whole melodrama is being played out right there next to him via the mirror. The hairdresser began to move his scissors to and fro. I felt myself powerless to stop the oscillations of the cold steel. See, this is it. This is it. Like, hey, this... So, Bernard says, so we are finally cut off and laid in swaths, I said. We have renounced our station and lie flat, withered, and how soon forgotten. The next sentence. Upon which I saw an expression in the tail of the eye of the hairdresser as if something interested him in the street. What interested the hairdresser? <laughs> now you remember when he was with Jenny he was with Jenny and he was weeping and confessing and contrite and somebody brought the note in and Jenny was answering the note and he thought who's she writing to what's the note about see exactly the same thing here he catch he looks up the barber is looking at something in the street with interest this is a perfect perfect picture of mimetic desire I'm interested in what he's interested in He's shown an interest. It must be interesting. So, what interested the hairdresser, he said? What did the hairdresser see in the street? It is thus that I am recalled. Parentheses. For I am no mystic. Something always plucks at me. Curiosity, envy, admiration, interest in hairdressers and the like always bring me to the surface. Isn't that something? I just think it's unbelievable. I think it's unbelievable. 
And to cap it all off, he says, while he brushed the fluff from my coat, I took pains to assure myself of his identity. And then, swinging my stick, I went into the strand. Now, I just want to say something about swinging the stick. <coughs> this story started with the fall story. And the fall story was not when Jenny kissed Lewis on the nape of his neck. It was when Susan saw Jenny kiss Lewis on the nape of his neck. The fall was, Lewis, was Susan seeing that and envy, falling into a kind of envy-jealousy situation and running away. And as Susan ran away from having seen that with, with her eyes red, Bernard said of her, she was not crying, but her eyes, which were so beautiful, were narrow as cat's eyes before they spring. She's running away having seen this. And Bernard says of her, now she walks across the field with a swing, nonchalantly, to deceive us. Then she comes to the dip. She thinks she is unseen. She begins to run with her fist clenched in front of her. All through this novel, swinging is a metaphor for the studied nonchalance. In other words, it's a metaphor for what happens when people are are trying to present themselves as being cavalier and uninterested in what other people see or think, when in fact it's all driven by how they appear. So when Bernard goes into the, to the uh, strand swinging his stick, it's an absolute indicator that he's back into the mad world of illusion. He's pretending not to be pretending. And that's what swinging the stick is all about. But there's one other aspect to it that I think maybe even goes deeper. You think I run the risk here of over-interpreting, over but I, it won't be the first time I've run it. And I think, it's worth, I think the, it's worth taking the risk. What does the stick represent? Again, I don't know whether Virginia Woolf was onto this level of the, of the symbol or not. What does the stick represent? Fundamentally, the stick represents our, our woundedness, our crippledness, our lack of self-sufficiency, our need. That's what the stick represents. When we take the stick and swing it, swinging the stick becomes a manifestation of self-sufficiency. So the irony here is that the very thing which should remind us of our need is used in order to convince our fellows of our self-sufficiency. Isn't that incredible? And I don't know why we shouldn't give Virginia Woolf credit for uh, making that insight available. If Virginia Woolf has difficult time ending this novel, she at least knows where she needs to go in order to end it. So Bernard, right after he gets his hair cut and nothing more, <laughs> walks into the street swinging his stick. Swinging his stick indicates that he got nothing more than a haircut. But the language here is amazing. It's as follows. Swinging my stick with my hair newly cut and the nape of my neck tingling. Wait a minute. The nape of the neck in this novel, that's where Jenny kissed Lewis. That's where the whole thing began. That's what set the melodrama in motion. And this guy went in to get a haircut. We thought it was like Quixote going to the barber. He was going to unburden himself lie down under that sheet and come up a new man, you know? And what happens? He comes out with nothing more than a haircut. And what does the haircut do for him? It has the nape of his neck tingling. Is he ready for the melodrama or what? You see? Even more so. It's amazing. The novel has come all the way back around to the beginning again. Same song, second verse. So he says... Swinging my stick with my hair newly cut and the nape of my neck tingling, 
I went past all those trays of penny toys imported from Germany that men hold out in the street by St. Paul's, St. Paul's Cathedral, but interested in all the trinkets. St. Paul's, Bernard goes on to say, St. Paul's, the brooding hen, with its spreading wings from whose shelter run omnibuses and streams of men and women at rush hour. I thought how Lewis would mount those steps in his neat suit with his cane in his hand and his angular, rather detached gait. He would come, I thought, with greater respect to these old ceremonies than I do, who have heard the same lullabies for thousands of years. So he stands at the... At the bottom of the steps to St. Paul's. And what does he do? Does he climb the steps? No, he will. But first, he, he has to imagine Lewis climbing them. He does finally climb them, remembering how Lewis would have climbed them. And he comes to the church. But in order to pick up a, a, a an echo, I want to go back for the fourth or fifth time to that chapel scene where the where the headmaster is reading from the Bible and Neville and Bernard and all of the boys are there. And Bernard says, when, when believers get into the fix we're in, they consult these violet-sashed, sensuous-looking gentry that are trooping past me, namely the clergy. But Bernard says, but for ourselves, we resent teachers. We resent teachers. Remember, Rousseau said, it was not until someone in authority told me what to do that I knew what it meant to want my own way. You see, that automatic reflex, that's called scandal. So he says, so Neville at school in the dim chapel raged at the sight of the doctor's crucifix. And Bernard says, therefore, I tell stories in order, to, in order to obliterate the angles of the cross. Okay. Now he's standing in the back of St. Paul's, looking around. He's come to the right spot. If, if Girard is right about novels and the Western tradition, Bernard has come to the right spot to undergo the necessary transformation which will allow Virginia Woolf to conclude this novel. Can they do it? He says, I scoff at the floridity and absurdity of some scrolloping tomb and the trumpets and the victories and the coats of arms and the certainty so sonorously repeated of resurrection and of eternal life. He scoffs at all these things. What's he fundamentally scoffing at? The certainty. So sonorously repeated of resurrection and eternal life. Automatically scandalized by it. You see? The very fact that somebody in our world would declare something to be unequivocally true is itself scandalous. You see? That is the world we live in. The, the, the philosophers and the literary theorists who are inventing deconstruction are simply making it, making it uh, explicit. The stance that Bernard is taking here is cloaked always in rational terms, hinted at here by Bernard calling the old ceremonies lullabies. But what really underlies this stance is an irrational, reflexive antipathy for received truth. Poor Bernard is sitting there thinking that his, his little rationalizing mind is clicking away and he is, on the basis of its, of, of its modest little operation, he is throwing out this uh, dispensing with this tradition that's trying to throw him a life uh, preserver. And he said, you know, that Lewis would mount these stairs with more respect than he could and that's very prophetic because she's right, Virginia Woolf is writing this a, a, a good deal of time before Lewis's counterpart, which is T.S. Eliot, wrote the four quartets. And in the last of the four quartets, Little Gidding, which is a chapel, Eliot says, you are not here to verify, instruct yourself, 
or inform curiosity or carry report. And that's just what Bernard needs, Bernard needs to hear at this point. Bernard is very much there to, to verify, instruct himself, inform curiosity and carry report. And Eliot says, that's not what you're here for. Eliot goes on in, in Little Gidding. You are here to kneel where prayer has been valid. And prayer is more than an order of words, the conscious occupation of the praying mind or the sound of the voice praying. Prayer really is the key to the experience of transcendence in our world. Kierkegaard, remember I started out with Kierkegaard saying, purity of heart is to will one thing. Kierkegaard is not talking about some He's talking as an existentialist. He's not talking about some narrow, puritanical sh shutting out of everything else. Purity of heart is to will one thing. How does that come about? In the same essay, Kierkegaard says, purity of heart is the very wisdom that is acquired through prayer. The prayer does not change God, but it changes the one who prays. Okay, so Bernard is, meanwhile, standing at the back of of St. Paul's ready to verify and inform curiosity. And it's even in the language that Virginia Woolf uses. He says, I stray and look and wander. There you have it. I stray and look and wander and sometimes rather furtively try to rise on the shaft of somebody else's prayer into the dome out beyond wherever they go. Now, remember, earlier on he said, the old impulse which has moved me all my life to be thrown up and down on the roar of other people's voices. Here you have another version of the same thing. Trying furtively to rise on the shaft of somebody else's prayer. Again, you have the mimetic thing. He walked up the stairs the way Lewis might have walked up them, and now he's trying to rise on the shaft of somebody else's prayer. But, he says... Like the lost and wailing dove, I find myself failing. Now, he's the lost and wailing dove. We have to keep our eye on the ball here. He's the lost and wailing dove. I find myself failing, fluttering, descending, and perching upon some curious gargoyle. So it didn't work. Well, but let's hang on to that image and come back to it in just a second. So we have another failure. He leaves St. Paul's. And he says, So into the street again, swinging my stick, looking at wire trays in stationers' shop windows, at baskets of fruit grown in the colonies, murmuring, Pillicock sat on Pillicock's hill, or hark, hark, the dogs do bark, or the world's great age begins anew, or come away, come away, death, mingling nonsense and poetry, floating in the stream. Now, I want to do a little analysis of this that's, that's largely literary. Bernard is the novelist. He has just walked away from a, the conversion experience, and he's back out into the street, and he's back out into the street facing the question, where does literature go from here if it can't go through that? And he comes up with two solutions. One is imagism. Looking at wire trays in stationer's shop windows of baskets of fruit grown in the colonies. Just watching things, taking notes of things, details, uh, the, getting, the, getting the, the sense experience of the texture of life and just recording it. But then the opposite of that murmuring, Pillicock sat on Pillicock's hill, or hark, hark, the dogs do bark, or the world's great age begins anew, or come away, come away, death, mingling nonsense and poetry, floating in the stream. What stream? The stream of consciousness. This is what, what Joyce and Virginia Woolf are experimenting with, stream of consciousness. So suddenly we see imagism and stream of consciousness, if we follow the logic of this novel, Imagism and stream of consciousness as what's left when you enter a world where you can't conclude the thing. But meanwhile, what's happening is that the self is coming apart. Bernard, late in the novel, says, after he has 
abandoned the opportunity of conversion, says, I addressed myself as one would speak to a companion with whom one is voyaging to the North Pole. That is an incredible statement. Now, you remember Charles Taylor, who's done a master study of, of, of the nature of the modern self, speaks of exactly this as the central paradox of modern philosophy, namely that we, are, we insist on the subjective position, but we use it and use it and use it till we get to this place where we can only speak of ourselves in the third person. And Bernard is exactly at that place. He said, I spoke to that self who has collected himself in moments of emergency and banged his spoon on the table saying, I will not consent. That self has managed to hold itself together as the underground man did by refusing to consent. That was his last this last-ditch effort to retain some psychological specificity. and then, But then Virginia Woolf goes to the bottom of this thing. This self, says Bernard, now as I lean over the gate looking down over the fields rolling in waves of color beneath me, made no answer. He threw up no opposition. He attempted no phrase. His fist did not form. You know, the underground man said, what would I do without my resentment? And Bernard speaks to this self, and his fist did not form. I waited. I listened. Nothing came. Nothing. I cried then with a sudden conviction of complete desertion. Now there is nothing. Life has destroyed me. Girard says, quote, Beneath the modern phantasmagoria, beneath the whirl of events and ideas which lie at the end of ever more rapid development of internal mediation, lies nothingness. Bernard says, The scene beneath me withered, it was like the eclipse when the sun went out and left the earth flourishing in full summer foliage, withered, brittle, and false. But what the eclipse does is it calls our attention to what is conspicuously absent. And I think what Virginia Woolf does in this novel is she calls our attention to what is conspicuously absent. Where does she take us? To St. Paul's. Where does she take us? To the barber who was at the end of Don Quixote. Where does she take us over and over and over again to this place where conversion is, is re reported to have happened in the past? And it doesn't happen. So there, the, the novel is eclipsing the, the very thing that is, according to Girard, the natural conclusion of the novel. Girard says, The conclusions of all truly great novels are reminiscent of an oriental tale in which the hero is clinging by his fingertips to the edge of a cliff. Exhausted, the hero finally lets himself fall into the abyss. He expects to smash against the rocks below, but instead he is supported by the air. The law of gravity is annulled. So we come back to the question of gravity. John Neihart's Red Cloud in the Song of the West, Cycle of the West, John Neihart's Red Cloud says, when the flesh begins remembering the ground, there is a, a silence wiser than all sound, a seeing clearer than the sun, and nothing we have tried to do or done is what the Spirit meant. See? I think that, that experience awaits us all. We should go ahead and have it as often as we can to prepare for the big one. After Bernard has gone to St. Paul's with, to no avail, he says, now it was done with. I had no more appetites to glut. The woods had vanished. The earth was a waste of shadow. No sound broke the silence of the wintry landscape. No cock crowed. A man without a self, I said. How can I proceed now, I said, without a self, without illusion? 
And so he gets up. He's been telling, narrating this to somebody he's having dinner with. The whole last part of the book has been a long narration to this stranger that's never identified. Finally, they're finished. They've talked the night through. Bernard gets up and goes out, and he sees just a little bit of light coming in the sky. And he says, But there's a kindling in the sky, whether of lamplight or of dawn. There is a stir of some sort. Sparrows on plane trees somewhere chirping. There is a sense of the break of day. I will not call it dawn. It is another general awakening. There's a little light there. Are we going to have something held out for us? Is it possible for Bernard, you know? Is another little hint that it might be possible? Yes, he says, this is the eternal renewal. That's the Nietzschean idea. And he articulates it exactly as Nietzsche would. The incessant rise and fall and fall and rise again. And in me, too, Bernard says, the wave rises. It swells. It arches its back. I'm aware once more of a new desire. The last page of the novel. We knew he would because he had the tingling on the nape of his neck, remember? The new desire, but listen to this, something rising beneath me like the proud horse whose rider first spurs it and then pulls it back. And that's the nature of this desire. See, it's always tantalized and then thwarted. It is death, says Bernard. Death is the enemy. It is death against whom I ride with my spear couched and my hair flying back like a young man's, like Percival's, when he galloped in India. So he's still following. This is, this is a version of pick up your cross and follow me. He's going to die like his Lord with his boots on. See. Against you I fling myself, speaking to death, against you I fling myself, unvanquished and unyielding, O death. This is... This is warmed over romanticism of the worst sort because it's romanticizing death which is what romanticism always does in the end romanticism always becomes nihilistic in the end when romanticism begins to declare its vacuity and those who have who are who are engaged in it do not abandon it it becomes nihilistic and the romantic is always more fascinated by his rival than he is by the supposed object of his affection and the rival here is death so it becomes death romanticism. At the same time that Virginia Woolf was writing this novel, T.S. Eliot was writing his, his, his great conversion poem, which was not his complete conversion, but it was the story of his conversion. And it ends inconclusively in the way this novel ends. Virginia Woolf committed suicide. I would love to know what might have otherwise happened because she came so close. And while she was writing this novel, T.S. Eliot was writing Ash Wednesday. We had Ash Wednesday this week, by the way. This is appropriate. We're reading it. Bernard had said, I, I perceive a stir of some sort, but I will not call it dawn. Eliot ends his poem this way. Here we go round the prickly pear, prickly pear, prickly pear. Here we go round the prickly pear at five o'clock in the morning. Between the idea and the reality, between the motion and the act falls the shadow, for thine is the kingdom. Between the conception and the creation, between the emotion and the response falls the shadow, life is very long. Between the desire and the spasm, between the potency and the existence, between the essence and the descent falls the shadow, for thine is the kingdom. And here's the powerful part. For thine is, life is, for thine is the, this is the way the world ends, this is the way the world ends, this is the way the world ends, not with a bang but a whimper. Incomplete. Can't complete the sentence. For thine is, life is, for thine is the, this is the way the world ends. It's so appropriate in a way. 
that this would be going on at the same time she's writing this novel. Let me end by going back and taking my hat off one more time to Virginia Woolf. In, at St. Paul's, Bernard stood at the back and at one moment said, I was like the lost and wailing dove. I found myself failing, fluttering, descending, perching on some curious gargoyle. And he went outside and he said, there's a stir in the air, sparrows on plane trees chirping, and a new desire and a desire to wrestle with death. And I think we're invited to put these two things, uh, juxtapose these two things. Sparrows on plane trees chirping, and the dove on the gargoyle wailing. And for me, what Virginia Woolf has done is that, you know, I have this, maybe I said this last week, but the old thing we used to say in the 60s or 70s about don't mess with Mother Nature, I feel that way about the paraclete, don't mess with the paraclete. Uh, if you try to tell a story, the purpose of which is to, is to obliterate the angles of the crucifix, you will have exactly the opposite effect. It will, the, the truth will always out. The paraclete will always use even your attempt to suppress it. And I don't think that necessarily Virginia Woolf attempted to suppress it, but something comes through here that is more powerful than it would have been had some person with conventional Christian faith written a nice little neat ending to this thing. So Virginia Woolf is performing the work of the paraclete by renouncing its promptings and faithfully documenting the results. And the results, in terms of an image, is the, is the wailing dove perched on a gargoyle. I think that stands for what this novel is. And so I'll return one more time to Girard. If our prejudices pro and con did not erect a watertight barrier between aesthetic experience and religious experience, we would see the problem of creation in a new light. We would at once realize that the Christian symbolism is universal and that it alone is able to give form to the experience of the novel. It's the wailing dove perched on the gargoyle. And, and that's all you can ask of an agnostic. You couldn't ask for more. This concludes The Self and Its Sources, Reflections on Virginia Woolf's The Waves. If you would like to learn more about the work of the Cornerstone Forum, please visit our website at cornerstoneforum.org. That's cornerstoneforum, all one word, dot O-R-G. Thank you for your interest in our work.